Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of The Comics Comic, found wherever you can type The Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Ali Faranakian is living the American comedy dream. Born in Iran and raised in North Carolina, Ali moved to Chicago after college and fell right in with the Second City, Improv Olympic, and the teachings of Del Close and Sharna Halpern. Saying yes and to life led him to becoming an original member of the UCB, a writing gig on Saturday Night Live's 25th anniversary season, a one-man show that hit the festival circuit, and opening the People's Improv Theater in New York City in 2002, where he still teaches new improvisers today. You may have seen him on Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, 30 Rock, Louie, Inside Amy Schumer, and Delocated, but you can hear him tell his story now. So let's get to it! <laughs> so, Olive Faranakian, thank you so much for being on Last Things First. Mm-hmm, my pleasure. So, Last Things First. Uh, tell me about the first time you met Del Close. Mm, the first time I met Del... Um, I guess I was the Improv Olympic. It was no. It was 1990, and I had gone there to study sketch comedy writing at the Second City with Michael McCarthy. And I found out about the Improv Olympic, and I was going there to see shows. And I remember, you know, I must have seen him somewhere around, but I remember walking up this bar called Wrigley Side is where they did their shows at that point on the second floor. I walked up, and he was at the top of the stairs, and there was someone else there, and. Of course, back then, people just wanted to talk about Farley getting to SNL and Belushi right. and you know all that stuff. And so um, he was at the top of the stairs, and we just started talking. Did you, you know? know who he was? Yeah. I mean, I knew he was because we had... Um, there was an article in GQ magazine the summer before I moved to Chicago with the cast of Second City getting a makeover. And in that article, there was Del Close's picture and a write-up about him. Okay. So I knew about him from there. And then once you got to Chicago, you knew you heard about who he was. <laughs> and and how, did your, how did your first in-person encounter match up with the things you were told or read about him? Well, we got along well from the get-go. I mean, you know, he didn't bear fools gladly, but if he liked you, he really liked you. And especially if on stage you did stuff that he... He liked or respected or appreciated you trying and trying to be real and authentic and truthful in real life. He would, uh, you know, he would vouch for you. And I guess for whatever reason, because I didn't know any better because I wasn't coming from a background of any kind of comedy background aside from doing bits in my fraternity. And for my friends in high school, I had no real acting or comedy background aside from watching a lot of it. I was just being myself and truthful, telling stories and being myself in scenes, and he appreciated that. So, you know, I give him a lot of credit for, you know, encouraging Sharna to put me on a good team, you know, which ended up being the family. So is that is that how you ended up on the family? How, yeah. How well, did they pick? How did they pick fam, uh, well, I mean, teams I, back then? Well, back then, I mean, it's Sharna and Dell pick teams, mm-hmm. and. Um, how I ended up on the team? Well, I was taking classes at Improv Olympic because after I started doing the sketch writing classes at Second City, I wanted to take improv classes. And I heard about, you know, Dell and Sharn and the Improv Olympic. And um, I remember going to see 
uh, Southern Comfort Comedy Challenge. It was this thing they were doing at Second City Main Stage, and it was this group called Blue Velveeta, and they were up on stage, and it was amazing. And, and I went to her afterwards, and I said, I'd like to take a class. She's like, all right, yeah, okay, you sign up, yeah, yeah. And so I signed up to take a class, and I studied with her for a session, and she was, you know, very, you know, generous and wanted to put me on a team pretty soon. And I was like, no, 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 I'm just, uh, I'm just doing this to get ideas for writing. I'm a writer. I'm not a performer, really. And, uh, and then, you know, kept taking the class, and she was like, wanted to put me on a team. Mm -hmm. And then one day, you know, I was also taking advertising classes, and I decided that I was gonna just kind of pursue a life in advertising. Then probably been fun, but I think this is enough, and I don't see how this can really be a living. Okay. And then within like an hour, she called, and she goes, all right, listen, you're going up Friday night. I put you on a team. You're going up at 8 o'clock. Don't be a wussy. Just show up. You're going to do it, all right? And I was like, all right, I'll think about it. And then that Wednesday, that Friday night, I went up and went up with a group that didn't even have a name. It was TBA, to be, TBD, to be de determined. Okay, so and the team wasn't settled at that point. No, it was just a group of people that she was like, you're ready to be on a team. Okay. There was the group Victim's Family, there was Corky's Callback, and then there was this third team, TBD, which was the next group that was going to you know, become a team. So I performed with them on Friday night, and then within a month, I was sitting in with the family, and then within two months, she put me on the team. And then that's how I got placed on the team. Then she told me later that Dell had told her, um, make sure you uh, put him on a, a good team with other good players so he has oh. good people to play with. So who was on that first show? Of well, I mean, the first group that the family was or the first show? The first that, show that you did. The first show that I did, the people that, you know, I remember Rich Fulcher mm -hmm. was on that team. And I think eventually we, we chose the name Wheel of Tuna for some reason. Um, D. Ryan was on that team. I think Rich Sohn was on that team. Yeah. Those are the names that I can remember. You know, because right. I was only with them a show or two. You know, it's been 25 years. 25 years, yeah. But then the family at the time was uh, Adam McKay. It was Miles Stroth. Um, it was, who else? Rachel Dratch, maybe. Um, the team was in flux. Rick Roman. But then it eventually became, you know, myself and Matt Besser and Ian Roberts and Adam McKay and Neil Flynn and then Rick Roman. And Rick Roman was on the team. He passed away in a, in a taxi cab accident. And then Rachel Dratch was with us for a little while. And then she started playing with Jazz Freddy. And Pete Holney was with us for a little while. But I think then he started playing with Corky's Callback and doing stuff at The Annoyance. Now, as a, as, a, as a fresh, young improviser, how did you, how did you adapt to a, to a new team? Well, again, I didn't know what was going on. I, I, so, didn't, yeah. I, just, I was working at Blockbuster, <laughs> and I would take my lunch break, because I started work at 4. I'd take my lunch at mm -hmm. around 8, and I'd take the 22 Clark bus up to Wrigley Side, and I would do a show in my Blockbuster shirt in the beginning, turned inside out, and then I'd go back to work at Blockbuster. Because I was like, it took me a while to get a, a job. Okay. So I was like, I don't want to give up this blockbuster job. No. I mean, this thing's like five fifty an hour. <laughs> That's what they paid me, five fifty an hour. It was going to be five twenty five an hour, and then the woman looked at my resume, and she said, oh, I see you just graduated from college. I said, yeah, I just graduated from Carolina. She goes, you know what? Let's make it five fifty an hour. So that college degree was worth 25 cents an hour. Was it the college degree or that Southern charm? I think a little bit of both. <laughs> I think a little bit of both. And what was, so you're making 550 an hour, what was your living situation? Well, I was living in this place called the Canterbury Court Apartments, which I believe was just something around, something around, I think, 300 a month. I mean, okay. you could live in Chicago. That's what Chicago was great. 
it was like you could live for a lot less. And then I had a friend move in with me named Ricky Bell. And when Ricky moved in, we split the rent. I think it was about 225 a month each. So you were able to have like a very low living situation. You were able to, you know, eat whatever you ate. I don't know. I honestly I don't know how sometimes <laughs> we did it. <laughs> and did you did you pick Chicago because of that GQ article or what? No, I picked Chicago because I had um I I was watching SNL Christmas Eve of of 89. I had an epiphany that I wanted to write on that show at some point. And then I went back to Carolina. I told some friends about it. And one of my friends, Pat Cartmel, said, well, you should look into this place called The Second City in Chicago. They're like a comedy troupe. At that time, I didn't make the connection of SCTV and Second City. So I used the you know Google of the time, 411, and I called, hello, Chicago, Second City. Hey, do you guys have any writing classes? And they were like, yeah, we've got a great writing class taught by a former SNL writer, Michael McCarthy. And I was like, oh, sign me up. Mm. And so that's what led me to Chicago, is that former SNL writer, Michael McCarthy, who now... Um, gratefully teaches at the pit like once a month. He comes in from Chicago and teaches a great um, series of classes. So that's what took me to Chicago. Okay, so it was, it was word of mouth. Yeah, it was word of mouth. And again, you know, I, I look back on it, I look back on all of it. And, and, you know, a lot of people ask me, was it your dream to have an improv theater? Right. And I was like, no, but I guess it was my destiny. You know, it was my. I don't even know if it was a dream, but I guess it was my want to be part of a community. And throughout my life, it had always been part of different communities, whether it was the tennis team in my high school, the dorm I lived in at Carolina, the fraternity, Kai Sai, that I was in at Carolina. And then after that, you know, Improv Olympic, Second City, UCB, SNL, you know, different fraternities throughout my life. So I guess I just eventually built or what I wanted, which was a place to be part of a community where I got to, you know, teach and perform and do some architecture and design and, you know, engineering on a low level. Because as a, as a college senior in North Carolina... A fifth-year senior. fifth-year. Well, that's, that's, that means you're doing it right. Right. They tricked me. <laughs> they said, for those of you graduating in 89 or 90 who choose the five-year plan, I was like, oh, what's this? Well, everybody says college is the greatest years of your life, so why not expend it? It was. They so, were. <laughs> but you could have just as easily, as an aspiring Saturday Night Live writer, gone to Los Angeles or c come straight to New York, to mm. the source. Yeah, I don't but, know why. But something about your friend saying Second City connected yeah. with you. Something about that connected, I don't think I ever ever thought about. You know, Los Angeles, I thought about a little bit. You know, because I had friends who moved out there, and they had a room for me, and I was going to move out there and live with them. So that was an option. Um, New York, I had friends who lived here, and I'd come and visit here. But I guess, I don't know, those are tough cities. They all had blockbusters at the time. They all had a blockbuster, and that's all I needed. All I needed was a blockbuster, give me the yellow blacks, I'm going to show up. I'm going to do my job. I don't know. They're just, it seemed to me, I guess, Second City and Chicago was the easiest way to, like, there's a class. Mm -hmm. There's a former SNL writer. He's teaching. You could see a path. There was a path to go in there, take one class, show what I got, and then I'm going to get a job and I'll be good. You still had the, the backup plan, though, taking the advertising classes. Yeah, the backup plan was, you know, advertising classes was definitely, I mean, I love copywriting, and a chance to be a copywriter was definitely something that I would have been happy to do and still enjoy coming up with ads and copywriting. 
you know? So that was definitely a plan of some kind. I don't know if I had any kind of real plan, though. What about when you were a kid? Did you have other well, dreams or aspirations? Yeah, I guess when I was a kid, you know, I thought I wanted to be a doctor on account of my dad's a country doctor, mm -hmm. on account of, you know, uh, MASH and St. Elsewhere. But later in life, it hit me, I realized that I liked the idea of pretending to be a doctor. Because I, once I finally got to be a doctor on many shows, I mean, I think I've been a doctor at least a dozen times. Mm. I got to count it up one of these days. But it's like 12 to 15 different doctors I've played. I realized that's what my soul wanted to be, and I didn't realize it. My ego thought, you must be a doctor. Your right. father is a doctor. You love doctor stuff. But really, I just wanted to be a, you know, it's play more, make -believe. It's more fun that way. Way more fun. Less, less. Oh my gosh. More killing, less dying. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I drove an ambulance for a year oh. in Chapel Hill. Okay. Or was part of a team, and I drove the ambulance, and I was in the back of the ambulance, but I was an EMT, and I wanted to find out if I wanted to be a doctor. And after a year of it, I was like, yeah, no, I don't want to be around death and dying, and this is too much for me. I, was, I, I had a phase in college where I thought I wanted to go to law school, but that's because I, I had visions of being a judge, mm. I think through the Supreme Court and mm -hmm. through popular culture. But I didn't actually want to be a lawyer first or do any of that. I just wanted to... Wear the robe, and <laughs> preside, pass judgment. Yes. And now I, now I do that just for comedy. Right, right. So you see, the thing is, we have to delineate between the idea of something and the reality. And wanting to be a judge, the way you were saying, is your soul is trying to guide you in a way towards what you want. You want to be a, a judge, but you want to be a judge of comedy, right? And write articles about comedy. So same thing, I guess I wanted to be a doctor on TV. I don't want to be a real doctor. What was the last actual job you had before comedy became your full-time vocation or avocation? Well, when I got the job at SNL in 1999, I was waiting tables at the Black Hawk Lodge when my pager went off. Mm. And it was my agent calling me to say it had happened. The I, offer had I've, been made. I like so much about that sentence. <laughs> Waiter, Black Hawk Lodge, That's right, pager. Chicago. I know. I was in Chicago, the Blackhawk Lodge, waiting tables, lunch shift. Pager went off, answered it. So how did you give notice at that job? You know, it's, it's foggy, but I guess I must have told them that I got a job in New York and I was leaving. And again, I was a lunch waiter. Oh, lunch waiter, not a dinner I waiter. I wasn't a dinner waiter. Not brunch, I was, lunch. No, just lunches during the week, oh. you know. And the restaurant, I think, was doing okay, but they, I'm sure, could do without a lunch waiter. You know, and then found out that Friday and flew to New York that Sunday and began Monday. Wow. Yeah. What was what was orientation like at Saturday Night Live well, for I mean, a writer? Because it's probably different for writers than uh, for cast members. Well, the writers that year was the 25th anniversary. Got there three weeks before the 25th anniversary show, before the season began. So there was a lot of just being on your own, kind of writing a sketch a week a commercial parody a week, um, and just kind of getting acclimated. And then eventually when all the other writers showed up and everybody showed up, you know, I guess there was some conversations, but it's a lot of just figuring it out on your own. Luckily, I had friends who had been hired that year. Rachel Dratch also got hired as a performer. She was the only performer hired, and I was the only writer hired. But Horatio was there, and we were friends, and Adam McKay was there, and Tina was there. And those folks were 
instrumental in getting me hired. And, you know, Steve Higgins had seen me at um, Second City ETC. That's where they saw me or he saw me. And so he was uh, instrumental in getting me hired. And Mike Shoemaker and I hit it off. And, you know, it was just the alchemy was right. The time was right. It had been nine years since I had the epiphany in Chapel Hill. And, you know, it was just one of those things where the stars aligned. And for a moment in time, I got to be a made man. Did this past 40th season and all of the hoopla regarding that bring back memories for you? Yeah. Being I mean, part of that 25th? Yeah, absolutely. Class? I mean, I was in Stowe, Vermont, skiing with my family, you know, while the, the 40th anniversary show was happening. But sure, it, you know, I mean, I live at 48th and 2nd, so I walk by 30 Rock all the time. And, you know, just last week I had the good fortune because of, you know, Tina and Jeff Richmond, my director at Second City, to be on Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. So, you know, every time I see them, it brings back memories. You know, it was a, you know, a young person in their early 30s, 25th anniversary, you know, Saturday Night Live, New York City. There was just so much of it that was, it was a magical time. And, you know, like I said, the best thing that happened in my career was getting hired by SNL, you know, and the second best thing was getting let go you know, by them right around Christmas because they let go of three writers. Oh. And it was a last hired, first fired type situation, you know, I like to think, and because two other people got let go as well. But, you know, I'd seen what I needed to see, and it was time to get out there and start, you know, performing again. And I ended up doing a solo show called Word of Mouth that went to the Aspen Comedy Festival. And all of that led to opening, you know, the pit, and Simple Studios and Pioneers and the Pit Loft 13 years later. Yeah, 13 years later. What, what's the, you know, writer, actor, teacher, theater, owner, caretaker, what's the, what's the, what's the first thing you usually tell somebody who asks you, who are you? What? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, <laughs> depending on who it is, but mostly if my daughters ask or people ask, the first thing is teacher. I mean, everything I have, you know, has come from teaching improvisation and teaching sketch comedy writing. Obviously, you know, I've acted, you know, and I can act, and I've done voiceover work, and I've written, you know. I guess my daughters also call me or say that I'm, you know, you're a small-time comedian daddy. So I guess I'm a small-time comedian as well, you know. Uh, But, yeah, it depends on the day. And, And, you know, as far as the spaces go, the reason I try not to use the word owner is because, you know, what do I really own? I rent a space. I oversee a space. Obviously, the former tenants aren't here. It's a 100-year-old building. Almost everything we own is almost in a close to a 100-year-old building. And so if the former tenants aren't here, then it's like a clue of like, wait a minute. That means someday we won't be here. Mm. So that, you know, you have to stay humble with that. You know, if the city of New York shows up or the landlord shows up, then yes, I'm the owner. Well, and New York has changed so much just in these past 13 years. It's a battlefield, I think, for businesses from around the world to come here now and take property and do business. Right. You know, Chick-fil-A, something I grew up with in North Carolina, which I loved, which was a treat. They're coming to New York now. And now all the space in New York is being taken up by other people who have cultivated their businesses elsewhere. You know, so for rent signs are everywhere. And you try to hold a piece of property as a tenant for as long as you can and do as much good as you can and do as well as you can. But ultimately, when the lease is done, there's no guarantee. <coughs> what, what made you sign that very first lease? 
what inspired you to well i mean that was it was it was it seeing your former troop mates do it with ucb and go i could do that yeah i don't know if it was that i wasn't you know again like i said i i really um resonated with me the movie sex lies and videotape when james spader had one key and he didn't want a second key he had a key to his car and then he was moving in with these folks here's your key to your apartment he's like uh i just want one key and that for some reason resonated with me and so it wasn't my dream to run a theater it was my dream to be a part of a theater you know to be maybe a general in a theater Mm -hmm. a teacher a performer a part of it but i didn't want to be the owner but it just felt like it was post 9-11 and you know that's hard for a lot of people to understand who don't live in new york and people even who live here could maybe understand that that period of time was a lot of these this was going on you hear mm-hmm. this in the background these you know fire alarms and you know sirens, and sirens. but there was a sense of what am i going to do with my life and so it just felt it was time you know having been a founding member of ucb and you know taught for them performed with them it just felt like what else could I do? And I just wanted to essentially teach more than one class a week and do more than, you know, ask cats on Sunday night. And I just thought I could I could do more with with what I had. And it was time. I'd apprenticed for twelve years at Improv Olympic at Second City at UCB. And for me it was time to put a shingle out and see if I could take a piece of property and, you know, turn it into something. And I had just done law and orders and those law and orders is how I had the money to get a space that also made you a bona fide new yorker being in yeah. law and oh, order absolutely. that's like I mean, the, the key to being a new york actor i mean it was, was being in law and order but if i hadn't got let go from snl i wouldn't have done that one man show word of mouth which got me agents at paradigm which eventually got me the audition to play the arab american attorney who had defended the american taliban and that audition and that role led to getting the money to start the pit so it wasn't that I got rejected along the way. It's at each point I got redirected. How, how much do you think your, your training in performance and improv plays into recognizing that offstage in, in these moments in your life? Well, I mean, without a doubt, it's my religion. I mean, in the pit, we say improv your life. So we use improv not just as, you know... A set of tools on stage but I use it as a set of tools in life I try to say yes and <coughs> yes and until I have to say no thank you make statements not questions justify why something happened not let something define you but refine you you know so without a doubt for me I'm always looking for okay this happened so I could do this why did this happen you know why did I get let go from SNL at this point so that I could go on and be available uh, to look at an apartment with my friend who invited me to come look at an apartment with him and his wife and then end up buying that apartment, you know. Why did, you know, a second daughter was born, Olivia, my wife didn't want to live in a walk-up. We have to sell that apartment. Why? Well, if we hadn't sold that apartment, we wouldn't have the money to start the pit at 24th between Park and Lex and Simple Studios. So along the way, improv is my religion, and it, you know, without a doubt, has guided me to sitting here with you sitting here with you is i got an email you want to do my podcast yes and can you do it thursday there's it's that easy you know yes and until you have to say no thank you (laughs) what's the last thing you said no thank you to well i should say no thank you to a lot more stuff (laughs) i really should but i'm just you know such a diehard you know del close devotee of Mm -hmm. 
you know, he handed me the sword of yes and. And so if I have an Achilles heel problem, I say yes and to way too much stuff. Um, that's why it's hard for me to think of what did I say no to recently? Yeah. I don't know. It's been a while since I've said no to stuff. But believe me, there are things I should definitely have said no to. But we'll figure out. Time will tell why I didn't say no and I said yes and how other good things came from saying yes to something I should have said no to. <laughs> uh, has anyone ever tried to lure you away from either the pit or from New York City? Well, L.A. is something that always people try to get me to go to and open a pit in L.A. And every time mm. some... Pittison moves to Los Angeles, they're always like, when are you going to open a pit in L.A.? And I'm always like, give me a million dollars and I'll do it this year. But you can't just go out to L.A. and kind of do it halfway. If I did something in L.A. and opened La Pit, Los Angeles People's Improv Theater, I would need a substantial chip stack. You know, and again, my daughters are seven and nine. Do I want to spend a year and then, you know, I have a business down the street. These businesses take time and energy. And bricks and mortar is a tough thing. So L.A. does, you know, has its allure in terms of not doing it out of opportunity, but maybe obligation for the number of citizens that have gone out there. And, you know, eventually they're going to find other places to do stuff. No one's going to wait forever. And hopefully they found places that treat them with respect and they get to do it in a nice stage, a nice environment, and they can grow their craft and, you know, get the, the gigs and opportunities they want. But... For me to do a, a battle like that, each of these construction projects that we've done is like it's like a battle. It's like a war of sorts. You know, they demand time and energy and money, and you know they take their toll on you. So doing Los Angeles, everything would have to kind of be right. Right. There's so much of it that doesn't involve actual comedy. Right. <laughs> the, the construction, the building permits, the dealing with city people, and. Absolutely. I mean, look, I just finished teaching a three-hour improv class. I love it. It energizes me. It's fun. But there's a lot of stuff we had to do today as a team to get to that class. A lot of electrical issues, a lot of toilet issues, a lot of carpentry issues, a lot of human resources issues, a lot of financial issues. <coughs> and and how, much, how much did Dell and Charna train you for that? Well, Charna, probably more so than Dell. Dell was, you know... Um, he got to show up and teach improv, and that's what he wanted to do, and that was the arrangement. Sharna was the business person. They had a great dynamic. The two of them, you know, almost like Lincoln and Ulysses S. Grant, it allowed for each of them, it was the perfect yin and yang to grow something, you know, at the right time when it was needed. So Sharna definitely is one of my mentors, you know, somebody who uh, I apprenticed for. And again, I didn't know I was apprenticing, but I was. I was apprenticing Improv Olympic with Sharn. I was apprenticing Second City with Andrew Alexander and Kelly Leonard. I didn't know I was apprenticing there. I didn't know I was apprenticing at the UCB. <coughs> it's almost like the movie Limitless, where <laughs> afterwards you're like, oh, I know how to do this stuff. You know, and I'm just fortunate that I found something like improvisation that I enjoy teaching and doing, and sketch writing that I enjoy teaching and doing, and acting that I can do to some degree and voiceover, you know, it takes a lot of W-2s to cull together a life. So you've had the pit now for 13 years. When was the first, what was the first sign that this was going to last, that you realized, oh, this is, this is working? I don't know if there's any point where I've ever been like that. You know, even today it's, you're trying to plan for the future. I mean, it's here now, you know. 
it's working, but there's a lot of other people doing it. A lot of the theaters popping up just to teach classes. Yeah. A lot of places to perform that aren't even theaters, the basement of bars. It's a different market than when we started. When we started, it was just UCB, and then there was Gotham City Improv, there was CCL, but really when we came and started doing it, there were so many talented people that came to join us who I guess had not found a place where they could really perform there or teach there the way they wanted to, that we were just, we were, we were lucky. We had an embarrassment of riches with instructors like Kurt Braunholer and, you know, Jen Nails and Kimmy Gatewood and Rebecca Johnson and Matt Donnelly and, you know, and then these performers that happened to come along like Kristen Schaal and Ellie Kemper and, yeah. you know, they just happened to be at the right place at the right time and, you know, like any place, we just, we happened to be a place. We didn't, you know, they, those, all those people were going to be successful regardless of us. We just happened to be a place that had opened up and, you know, hopefully created a win-win situation where the pit got to grow and they got to grow and, you know, you know? How how much of your own growth has been, like your one man show, been word of mouth, and how much has been actively promoting the People's Improv Theater? Well, I mean, you, you get it's very easy to get bogged down in making sure twenty two toilets are working mm. every day and business is being run. I perform every Wednesday night at ten o'clock. That's my spoonful doing improv ten thirty with the faculty of the theater. I teach two or three nights a week, you know, and when there are show slots that people, you know, bail on, I'll do a show. If I'm asked to do a show, I'll do a show. You know, if I get an audition or offer for a TV job or a movie job, I'll do it. You know, but again, I've got two daughters. I like spending time with them. I'm a homebody in many ways, you know, um, but I don't know who I would be without, you know, the pit in the past 13 years. You know, I definitely wouldn't have had this level of just invisible combat stripes of, you know, we've built 30,000 square feet of space. You know, there's leadership stuff that I've had to take on that I wouldn't have taken on. You know, teaching that I wouldn't have had to, to do at a level, the amount, it's just the volume of teaching and performing and running spaces over 13 years is just, it's, it's a lot of it. And I've enjoyed it, I enjoy it, you know. You know, that old story of like all of life comes down to what flavor shit sandwich do you like eating? Mm. You know, no matter what you do, there's always going to be like some aspect of it. Like, do I want to make sure the wars are the, the floors aren't warping in the bar and how are we going to deal with that? No, but I got to. I don't mind. It's construction. Do I, you know, do I want to make sure understand why the toilets aren't flushing or the things are coming off the you know, hinges of them? But we'll deal with it so that we can do improv, teach improv, have shows, be a part of a community. How much of that do you try to delegate and how much of that do you feel you personally need to well, take on? I mean, look, we got an incredible team of people here who do stuff. You know, but I also don't mind getting in the trenches of, you know, you got to delegate. I can't. I mean, there's so much stuff that I can't do and I don't know how to do, but it's a matter of finding the people who do how to do it and try to empower them to do it and pay for the resources of them doing it and then getting it done. You know, there's things that I know I can do. I can go anywhere in the world and I can teach an improv class. I know that. I can go anywhere in the world and teach a sketch writing class. I can do voiceover. Within reason, given lines for a scene, I can deliver on that, you know. Technical stuff, how to do lights and sound, how to do editing, how to do, you know, booking of classes, how to do, you know, booking of shows. You know, those are things that other people have shown up to help and be a part of. 
Yeah, it's important. I, I know as myself being a one-man band, I need to learn how to delegate more. Right. Um, what's the, along the way, what's the, what's the last great bit of advice you've, you've received? Advice that I've received? Well, I don't know. I mean, I get a lot of advice. When you, <laughs> when you are somebody who oversees plays, mm -hmm. everyone's got notes for you. Everyone's got advice. What's the, what's the last great one that you're like, okay, this, this one is, this one, this one's good. Well, I mean, the one that, you know, the Vietnam War ended, so will this. <laughs> I've heard that a good bit lately re regarding a business venture, mm -hmm. and I just keep that in mind, that, you know, they can't all be gems, right? you know, and this thing that I'm involved in right now will end someday, and time will tell why it happened, why I got into it, probably for the wrong reasons, and what will eventually end it. It will end, and it'll just... It'll cost time and money and hopefully not bloodshed, oh. you know, but it'll it'll end. So this too shall pass is yes. a good one. And I use, pass. you know, I use certain credos like could be worse. I use that a lot. That is definitely like a default thing I will say a lot. This too shall pass, you know. And what's the uh, what's what's the first thing you generally tell people who come to you seeking counsel or advice and making their way through the world of comedy and show business? Well, I mean, it, d it depends what they're asking of me. I mean, I, for some reason, I get a lot of friends or parents' friends who want me to talk to their young folks. Ah, uh, yes. And they want that. advice about comedy or acting, and I'm happy to talk to them and, you know, see where they are. But in this day and age, you have to delineate between the idea of something and the reality of it and make sure you like the reality of being an actor or an improviser, not just the idea of it not doing it to try to be famous, but trying to do it to be successful. And one of the things we say at the pit is, <coughs> work on your craft and your career will come. Work on your community and your career will come. But just work on your career and you'll have neither craft nor community. And really, everything I've gotten is because of my community and my craft. My community is friends who have achieved and then they call me and say, you want to be in our show. My craft is 25 years of doing this so that I can learn the lines and when someone says action, I can say it and do something that I guess is workable or doable for them. So when you do take an acting job, whether it's uh, Unbreakable, Kimmy Schmidt, or uh, I remember seeing you and Louis or Inside yeah, Amy Schumer. Was, yeah, both of, but both those people, Louis and Amy, were kind enough to ask me to be their shows. John Glazer. So see, that's what I'm saying. The community. Uh, you know, would I have been cast as a as a uh, uh, Blackwater operative guarding, you know, John Glazer, if it weren't in his show? No, they would have got a guy who looked like one of those guys. I look like the guy that those guys did stuff to, <laughs> you know? Um, and Amy, you know, same thing. If I'd gone through an audition process and they didn't know me, would I have gotten cast in the you know, two episodes? Probably not, but I met her doing John's show, Delocated. We became friendly, and then twice she reached out and said, you know, <coughs> would you do these roles in the show? I was like, yeah, absolutely. And that's all through through that community. That's all through the community. Twenty five years, Glazer and I met twenty five years ago at Second City. You know, became friends, hung out, did shows, and then you know when he had his show, he reached out for me to play his bodyguard in season three of Delocated. That's all community. But the craft had to be there. You know, they can't just put you in their show. 
you know, right. you still have to be able to deliver. To fulfill the role. To fulfill the role and deliver what is asked of you. Right, like you said, the idea of the thing versus the doing of the thing. Right. You have to be able to, to execute. Yeah, and I like, I mean, I like it. Whenever I do it, I enjoy the environs of being on a set. I like playing make-believe. I like learning lines. I like improvising around it. I like alt lines. I like the whole, I just like and enjoy being on a set. <coughs> Well, Ollie, thank you, thank you so much for for creating oh. these communities here it's in over. New York City. Oh, yeah. you're welcome. Oh, okay. Now, wow, that, that snuck up on me, Sean. Yeah, that's that's life for you. It really sneaks up on you. It's all all of it's a sucker punch. In the end, you just get knocked out by a sucker punch. All right, thank you, Sean. Well, My it, pleasure. It was, it was a very sweet punch. Oh, yeah, well, I felt it. it was gentle. <laughs> I'm gonna sleep now. All right. Good night. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Thanks first.